And with ketamine, there's a lot of uncertainty right now about where and how it's being produced because that market is shifting really rapidly because we're seeing just this explosion in demand for it ever since it became fast-tracked for treating depression and the scientific community took up so much interest. And suddenly you have like middle-aged white moms in the suburbs who are really excited to try horse tranquilizer for the first time, right? right? After previously admonishing it probably. So Mm -hmm. I don't know, like, I really just don't know, but the trends are there and, um, like it is, it is by far more common to see fentanyl and cocaine, than any other non-opioid drug that I can think of, aside from potentially benzo sometimes. Welcome to the Mr. Bill Podcast. I'm Anand Harsh, Editor-in-Chief of the Unst.com, Bill's manager, and as sort of a reset for those new to the podcast, why am I doing the intros? Well, uh, because Bill hates doing them. He's all about that razzle-dazzle show business, come in, do the interviews, get the glory, and get out. And leave the dirty work to me. So that's why you're hearing me now. Today's guest is Rachel Clark. She's the education manager at Dance Safe, a nonprofit that specializes in drug education and harm reduction. You can get test strips and information from their helpful volunteer crews at various events. And uh, Rachel is a veritable font of knowledge. Like me, she stumbled upon Airwood at a very young age and was off to the races in eliminating the stigma around drug use. She and Bill cover everything from the Nitrous Mafia to Biden's Rayback to neo-Nazis, running quite the gamut here. They also discuss the scourge on everyone's mind, the prevalence of fentanyl in recreational and pharmaceutical drugs. Really, really cool interview and uh, informational as well. Today's episode is brought to you by Artifone. They made a handheld mini looping MIDI controller and sequencer that's about the size of half an orange. Their bestseller Orba responds to natural gestures like tapping and tilting, and its touch-sensitive pads capture even the most subtle micro-movements. You can idea dump your next beat on the go. It's got a built-in speaker and an eighth-inch headphone jack if you don't want to broadcast your your sketches. Uh, Use it with any DAW like Logic or Ableton and take full advantage of its incredible MPE capabilities. The best part is it's under 100 bucks. So Bill said I had to make a beat with it uh, for the opening, and I was uh, brave enough to, to share one in the last episode, and I'm, I'm going to do it again. Um, our pal Richard Devine made a few patches for the Orba, which you can get for free from the app, and I made this uh, little Final Fantasy VII type ambient thing. This is an audio medium, but you should go check it out at Instagram.com slash Artiphone, A-R-T-I-P-H-O-N. You can plug it into a tablet or computer to change the sounds, export videos, do all sorts of things. Use code MrBillsTunes for 10% off your Orba. If uh, even a dummy like me can use it, you're going to be great. This will become your new addiction. Everything's on the website, tutorials, sample packs, tour dates, and even this podcast. Go to live.mrbillstunes.com for absolutely everything Mr. Bill. And thank you to everyone who supported the uh, debut Kill Bill EP. That's a Bill's collab with Kill Smith. It's uh, it's blown up. Uh, frankly, we're all, you know, 
shocked, but also not shocked because it's rad and uh, just really excited about how well it's doing. The shows have been insane. Most of them have been just blown out and absolutely crazy. We're so thrilled. Uh, Kill Bill is in Charlotte on May 27th, DC on June 1st, and at Firelights Festival in August. Bill's doing solo dates at Bigfoot Electro at the end of May and uh, will be at Tribal Connection in Ohio at the beginning of June. Tickets at Linktree slash Mr. Bill's Tunes. There you have it. Enjoy Bill's chat with Rachel Clark of Dance Safe. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Perfect. All right. Well, hey, thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, it's really, really awesome to have you on. I've been a big fan of the Dance Safe Twitter for a while now. And, um, <laughs> you mentioned that you were the one who puts together all those tweets. Yes, uh, I yeah, do. I, I always find that really... together is a strong word. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what, what would you class it as? Well, um, when I started really... Um, getting more involved in dance safe social media a couple of years ago, I was less involved in Twitter and I hadn't really used Twitter very much. I'd been predominantly focused on other platforms. And then I discovered that, um, the secret to Twitter is just like saying all of your hot takes as they come to you. Yeah, pretty much. So, <laughs> so I just started every time I had a thought, I would just put it on Twitter and I was like, this is really easy. People just mm. are like, yeah, water it shows. Yeah. <laughs> nitrous balloons. It was right. just ridiculous how simple it was. So put together. Right. Yes, <laughs> I suppose. Right. I mean, it's always good advice though, right? Like, uh, I think like just off the top of my head, one I remember was something about like, oh, I don't know who needs to hear this, but you know, putting charcoal filters on your nitrous tanks isn't the worst idea ever. <laughs> it's like a bunch of people going like, oh yeah. And, um, right, right, right. I think the one from like a couple of, I just checked the Twitter quickly to see what was going on there. And it was just a mm. car just like full of empty uh, <laughs> nitrous tanks. And you're like, can you hear this image? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And got to get of, the people going, you know? Yeah, a lot of nitrous tweets. It's mm -hmm. a popular substance these days at festivals and, yeah, it's uh, got a lot, of, um, a lot of side effects for sure. I'm kind of interested it's, as to why that became like <laughs> the sort of drug nitrous? of choice. Yeah, I guess because it's just such, such a quick like uh, low um, – like, you know, when you take something like acid, it's, it's such a commitment. Whereas like right. with nitrous, it's such a low commitment thing. You take it, it's like, bam, I'm high and then bam, I'm straight. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's also legally attainable in some places more easily than others. But right. nitrous is a pretty complex one historically, socially, culturally. There's a lot mm. to say about nitrous. It's a really interesting substance in the way that it's become involved in like various communities, counterculture and otherwise, and its origin stories and its distribution. It's just like, it's very interesting. It's more complicated than people think. Right. Yeah. Um, would you like to get into that more or would you? Yeah. Why not? Why not? Sure. Yeah. Um, so nitrous, uh, rose to popularity. I can't remember which century it was, which sounds ridiculous, but it was an impressively far ago century, 1700s. I think it was the late 1700s. Wow. Um, 
it was discovered as being uh, an effective anesthetic and uh, it was inhaled out of silk bags and there were nitrous parties. I call them you old nitrous parties. Um, <laughs> and people would go to this guy's mansion and they would inhale balloons or bags of nitrous and just get fucked up together at these parties. And um, it became very popular in dentistry, obviously, and uh, is really effective in pediatrics and in other situations where someone needs to be um, sedated just enough or... Um, Effectively, it's it's an anxiolytic, right? It's anti-anxiety, mm -hmm. as well as being a euphoriant. And so it's really useful for getting people into a twilight state right before they go under for surgery. Um, very useful for pain relief as like an added thing. And very useful if you didn't take quite enough acid and you want to kick things up a notch, <laughs> then uh, one balloon will certainly do it for you. So there's like a whole lot of weird other counterculture history, like the, the nitrous mafia, like there's, there's all oh, kinds yeah. of stuff going on um, behind the scenes with nitrous in addition to that. Yeah. Um, I did not know anything about the nitrous mafia until the last time I played a show in Philly and I oh, walked yeah. up to the front and there's like a dude with essentially a trench coat with just like Ooh. a giant tank under it, just like blowing <laughs> up and passing them to people as they're coming out for like a dollar a pop or two bucks a pop or something. Yeah, I'll never forget being at the uh, San Diego Regional Burning Man event in, I think, 2014. And I walked past a camp where this guy was handing balloons to people and people would take them thinking it was nitrous and it was helium. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Great troll. Yeah, it yeah, uh, was a great prank. So what what is the nitrous mafia exactly? That's a great question. That's one area of it that I don't know enough about, but it definitely involves nitrous Right. And a group of people. <laughs> I just know that it exists. That's yeah. I've been uh, curious about it myself. I want to know more about it. But there's all kinds of wild underground uh, things going on with, uh, for instance, there's like an underground mycology ring. Mm -hmm. And there have actually been hits ordered on people who have shared the wrong spore print of a valuable kind of psilocybin mushroom. So, it seems like the yeah. shit that people taking mushrooms would not do, like order right. a shit on someone. <laughs> it seems like the kind of shit that like, I don't know, meth might produce, but like that kind of behavior mm -hmm. or something. But I guess, yeah. See, that's, that's the interesting thing about like the psychedelic exceptionalism movement too, is that I think a lot of people that are really invested in the good drugs, right? Like the ones mm -hmm. that have become more socially acceptable, um, typically stereotype negative behavior around people that use the bad drugs or the right, drugs right. that are not socially acceptable. But the fact point. of the matter is that your character can be influenced by certain environments, but your character remains your character. Um, so for instance, I have met plenty of people who are devout consumers of psychedelics who are total dickheads. Mm -hmm. And, uh, there's like a neo-Nazi movement that loves psychedelics, right? Wow. Um, and there are also many people who are like very functional meth consumers who you would never know consumed meth who are perfectly lovely sweethearts and it's just all across the spectrum. So it's really interesting seeing like different ways that those things can be challenged by certain social conditions and interactions like the underground mushroom hitmen and the nitrous mafia, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And also I find, um, generally a lot of people who take drugs, uh, uh, have a lot of, um, not, not everyone obviously, but like, you know, obviously there's a good portion of drug takers who are slightly more on the addict 
side of the spectrum than others and generally mm. part of being uh, you know on that side like the addict side which I myself am on is a mm. lot of your boundaries are kind of like not as there as maybe some other people's and just because sure. you take acid and some of those like quote unquote good drugs doesn't mean you aren't going to try meth and other things as well. Yeah. Well, that's actually, if I could get into it briefly, that's actually one of my favorite um, things to talk about with drugs yeah, is this idea. Let's, let's do it. Um, mm-hmm. This idea of like, I don't use personally because it's not an identifier for me. I don't use the word addict or addiction unless mm-hmm. someone requests to be, to be referred to as such, right? Like if someone self identifies and I'll be like, okay, that's how you want to be referred to. That's mm-hmm. what your condition is like for you. Then great. Um, but the words I use are compulsive and, um, rewarding and reinforcing Totally, yeah. because those three things are really the crux of it, right? Like behaviorally, those three things are the crux of it. So there can be like compulsive use where someone is using something kind of automatically, um, or there can be like a pressure behind it and compulsive use usually happens because a substance is rewarding and reinforcing. Mm -hmm. So rewarding, it feels good. You want to do it more reinforcing for some reason you want to do it over and over again. Um, so for instance, there are some people where stimulants don't feel rewarding to them because the physical aspects of it are really uncomfortable. Whereas for other people, those physical aspects are really comfortable. Like it's positive, it's rewarding. Mm -hmm. Um, so I've known several people who've just like smoked meth and been like, I'm unmoved by this. Like this doesn't feel good to me. I don't want it. And then there's the reinforcing component of things, which is like, inherently the way that you ingest a substance is going to determine how reinforcing it is to you, how much you want to continue doing it. So, um, for instance, smoking something as opposed to snorting it, um, is going to have typically a faster onset, a higher, higher bioavailability, which means that it can be absorbed into your bloodstream more easily, um, crosses the blood brain barrier more quickly. Um, and all these things will influence how reinforcing it is, right? Like Cocaine, for instance, super reinforcing for a lot of people because it lasts like half an hour right. <laughs> and uh, the crash is intense. So, um, there's diminishing returns and then the reward part is it makes you feel awesome for a lot of people, not everyone. Right. So that is a substance that might be prone to more compulsive use, but someone who has a hard time socializing or has a lot of social anxiety might find that they have compulsive use around MDMA, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's just my whole spiel about uh, the relationship, right? Like it's about if it's a toxic relationship with a partner, it's kind of like a similar sensation for a lot of people of like, I know that this is not necessarily beneficial, but I'm having a really hard time not engaging with it. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think, um, yeah, when I use the word like addict, uh, for myself, I essentially just mean those things. (laughs) It's just like kind of an all encompassing word for, for the problem. Totally. Um, so I asked, uh, some people on discord, uh, and, uh, some other platforms as well, just like if they have any questions for you. And I actually got a lot of interesting questions that I myself didn't think of, um, which you've probably been asked a bunch of times, but I'm interested, <laughs> interested to, to, um, hear your takes on them anyway. Somebody yeah, on, uh, on discord said, uh, ask Rachel how xenophobia shapes drug policy because she has a very interesting answer. And I've, n- I couldn't even like think of an answer myself, like as to how xenophobia would shape drug policy. So I'm really interested to hear what you, you have to say. Wow. Well, I'm also very curious who said that I have an interesting answer because that <laughs> is delightful. I'm just so happy to hear that. Um, I do talk about this a lot. 
So there's a book that I read actually in undergrad as part of a, um, a public health class that I was taking about um, La Frontera, the borderlands, like the U.S.-Mexico border, a subject of enormous contention for hundreds of years. And I wish I could remember what it was called. I have it written down. But this book was about um, public health measures that were taken during periods of significant immigration from Mexico. So like the Mexican Revolution of the early 1900s, for instance, saw hundreds of thousands of legal Mexican immigrants into the United States. But the United States has, um, as a predominantly white colonial culture, we have like a long history of not liking people who are not white and who are not subscribed to our general like ideologies as Westerners who have occupied this territory. Um, we do not take kindly to people entering our space. Like there's a lot of territorial defensiveness and in response to that territorial defensiveness, a lot of different things happened. Um, and one thing that a lot of people don't know happened was that when these Mexican immigrants were coming in, um, and this is not even related to drugs, when these Mexican immigrants were, were coming into the United States, there was this intensive de-lousing program that was implemented because the insinuation was they're dirty, they contain bugs, they have germs, they're going to like hurt us because they're animals, was basically the insinuation. Like we need to reduce them to being animalistic and treat them as such. Right, like treat so, it like a pest control problem almost or something like that. Precisely. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, yeah. So um, there was all kinds of stuff around this, around like quarantine actually was a, a really soft spot here. Like quarantine was big. Um, during these like huge immigration swells because of this idea of people being dirty or unclean. Then at the same time, we have um, Harry Anslinger, who, and for some of people, some people might know this name already. He's like a, maybe one of the worst figures in drug history. Um, this guy who was uh, one of the major proponents of alcohol prohibition. And when alcohol prohibition was threatened, so was his job. And uh, Harry Anslinger used to refer to weed as cannabis. And then during the 1910 to 1920 segment, he started referring to it very abruptly as marijuana. Um, so the xenophobia was specifically included in like, not only are Mexicans dirty, but also the drugs that they bring with them are dirty and dangerous and devilish. And this is seen in like Spanish conquistadors and the way that they treated um, indigenous use of coca, for instance, which they then loved and used in coca wine and started exporting. Like you would be like imprisoned or killed or enslaved if you consumed coca. That's just a different version of this. But um, with the Mexican immigration thing, marijuana started being popularized as the term, and then it became immediately stigmatized as like the Mexican drug. And previously, it was like pretty popular in the United States. Like there was a, a pretty significant like use of weed until it became uh, effectively eradicated by xenophobia and racism and the way that people were viewing its use. Reefer madness, um, the the main trope, and this is just like a flat out racist trope, mm -hmm. was like the, the idea that like black men would become crazed under the influence of cocaine or marijuana and rape your wives. Like that mm -hmm. was published in newspapers, right? Mm -hmm. So... That happened. And then, of course, we get back to like the 70, I think it was 1974, the Merida Initiative, um, where we began doing like intensive searches at the U.S.-Mexico border um, because Mexico was not 
complying effectively enough with the U.S. government's demands about regulating drug imports. They were like, it's your guys' fault. So we bottlenecked them at the border and cut off trade to Tijuana by making it extremely difficult to cross the border by implementing these huge searches of vehicles. Um, so whenever people are like the Mexican cartels are bringing drugs in, et cetera, or like China is manufacturing fentanyl, um, all of these things are related to like global foreign policy and related to economic policy. Like none of these things exist in a vacuum and they all have historical ties to the way that we effectively make up excuses as to why we don't like certain groups of people or find reasons to reinforce why we don't like certain groups of people. Like it's confirmation mm -hmm. bias. It's, I know this thing to be true and this is evidence that it is true on top mm -hmm. of that. Right. Yeah. So, you know, government can easily say things like, oh, China's, uh, you know, processing a lot of the ketamine or fentanyl or whatever drug and they're like importing it into the you know bays of it's their fault right whatever yeah and therefore like we shouldn't trade with them in this other way as well or something like that mm -hmm. and a, a really gnarly example of this is the opium wars in which mm -hmm. britain basically like started a war against china when china was like we're not going to keep um i don't want to misquote the history here actually so i'm going to stop myself here um, no because it's a kind of, kind of like a complicated war. There were two opium wars actually, basically with Britain being like, you need to trade with opium. Otherwise we're going to destroy you. Um, effectively because China was like a lot of our people are having, like a lot of our people are quote unquote addicted or whatever word you want to use. Like they have substance use disorders, they're addicted. Um, like we don't want to keep doing this. And Britain was like, yeah, you do. <laughs> it was so when it was economically viable for them all of a sudden it wasn't stigmatized and they were mm. like this is great and right, right. you're going to do it too now <laughs> yeah right and they start changing the headlines in newspapers and precisely yeah right speaking of fentanyl um i, I got just an endless amount of fentanyl questions because <laughs> oh, i'm sure to be the one of the biggest um like uh, pain points that everyone is sort of talking about these days <coughs> with mm -hmm. drugs and testing and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I'll just go through all of them. Uh, okay. <laughs> I suppose slowly <laughs> we'll try and get through them quickly because I know we yeah. have a time cut off. Uh, where should I begin? I guess uh, first of all, um, someone says, uh, who can I direct all my anger at for putting Fent in the K? <laughs> mm. uh, well... On the subject of the United States government and xenophobia, the United States government. Um, Putting fentanyl in the K. Well, so here's the important caveat is that a lot of people want a simple answer to what's going on. And a lot right. of people look at the fact that we have found fentanyl and ketamine. It's really uncommon still, like super uncommon, but it has happened. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason for it is certainly at this point with fentanyl and ketamine in the United States so far, it has been cross-contamination. We strongly suspect it's cross-contamination. Like someone is sharing packing surfaces or materials right. or whatever else. And fentanyl can be lethal in a dose, like a few grains of sand. So right. all it takes is a little bit of mix-up and that's it. Mm -hmm. um, there, have been, there are a lot of other theories out there that are unsubstantiated but possible. And I don't speak on any of those because it's really dangerous to speculate about stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I will assure you that it's not, quote unquote, the federal government trying to kill ketamine users now. Like that's not what's going on with this. Right. It's like you, you should not have significant trust of the United States government. I will say that like outright. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, absolutely. 
but like all the claims of like, they're trying to kill Adderall users now. It's just like, it's not quite what's happening. Um, Adderall uses? We found a single, there was a single report on drugs data of um, uh, counterfeit Adderall that also had trace amounts of fentanyl. Oh, which wow. was certainly from cross cross contamination. Right, it's like the people who are like doing these um, fake presses or whatever. They have you know yeah. like their their own area where they're making these fake presses or cutting cocaine or mm-hmm. whatever. And they're also doing fentanyl related stuff there. And then when they try and press these right. pills in the same area, they accidentally get some fentanyl in the Adderall or whatever. Exactly, and, right. and people were all over that, being like they're trying to kill Adderall users now. And I was like, that's too far of a jump. Right. And if we want to solve the problem, we have to look at what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. And so the root of that question, I wish it were shorter for me to answer these, but no, <laughs> it's, no, difficult. We can, <laughs> it's yeah. difficult to get that. Um, the root of that really is uh, you can blame prohibition because the reason that fentanyl rose to prominence was specifically because importing heroin and producing and smuggling heroin was made to be so difficult mm. that a cheaper and more potent and more cost-effective alternative became mandatory. Like it's really difficult to import and sell heroin in the United States. Mm -hmm. We see it occasionally, but it's almost entirely fentanyl now. And the reason is that if you have a bag of like diphenhydramine, which is Benadryl and maybe like a little bit of some other bulking agent and a little bit of fentanyl in it, then you can have like a shot that will have, like people that use dope will will be able to tell the difference generally, but mm-hmm. um, that will be convincingly an opioid because it is an opioid. Right. And that became appealing for like other downers like benzos too, although we don't see it that often. It's happened. Um, like fake press Xanax and stuff like that. Yeah. There's a, there's a so many like novel benzos on the market. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's yeah, like a yeah, whole yeah. other can of worms. Right. Um, But really at its core, the reason that fentanyl became so prominent is because we made it so hard to import heroin. And it's all very paradoxical. Like people are really uncomfortable with the idea that we need to actually make these things more accessible, like the quote unquote bad drugs more accessible, Mm. because now that all the fentanyl analogs are going to be banned, I absolutely a thousand percent guarantee we're going to see a new wave of even more poorly understood opioids synthetic opioids that will enter Mm -hmm. the market and we'll have to deal with it all over again Mm -hmm. it will just keep getting more potent and more difficult to trace and it's not going to end like as much as you want it to morally it's not going to end right i mean the only way to really end this is to like ask of everybody to stop doing drugs really which is like the craziest (laughs) ask ever and never gonna happen but you see the same thing happening sorry go on well i was i was just gonna interject that um it's not true that Dance Safe neither condemns nor condones drug use. We condone fulfilling experiences. We mm-hmm. condone benefit maximization as well as risk reduction. Like it would be a flat out lie to say that the world would be like a perfect better place if everyone didn't do drugs. Like people have fulfilling positive experiences on drugs every single day mm-hmm. and they have for since the stone age. Like it's been happening forever. And we don't we just like don't want to pretend even that is a good solution. Mm. Many people's lives are drastically enhanced by doing drugs and some are destroyed and those two things can exist at once. That's all I wanted to interject. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah. Going back to the, uh, the logic of um, if we, you know, make fentanyl analogs more difficult to, to trade or, 
something like that that'll introduce like just a different version of it. You see the same thing mm. with ketamine, right? Like I um, <laughs> did a bit of research yeah. on ketamine a while back and uh, realized that uh, A, it's really difficult to make ketamine mm. uh, and there's only like a couple of plants in, in the world who actually know how to make it correctly. Mm. And pretty much like in the early <clears throat> uh, days of like ketamine, which I guess was like the early 90s or something when like people were using it a lot in the in the early rave scene days, they were mostly get, uh, stealing it from like vet, vets and hospitals and stuff like that, right? And mm. uh, and now there's that's just not viable because you can't steal that much ketamine from vets and hospitals to supply the amount of demand there is for ketamine. So you get a lot of like you know, these weird analogs, right? Like DCK and 2FDCK <laughs> and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And that is another interesting market that we've been watching unfold because historically the ketamine that you would see on the street that was like ketamine ketamine was diverted from labs mm -hmm. but we've been seeing increasing um increasing instances of ketamine that appears to be manufactured in clandestine labs which is very interesting mm. um i suspect that a lot of these labs are in mexico but again every time i say that i have to be really careful because of the immediate of like oh well mexico's making the drugs like that kind of thing and it's like well yeah because we want them so badly <laughs> and they're so hard to get here and people will do anything and there's a lot of poverty um but something we're seeing a lot more of is uh, ketamine precursor a which is just precursor made to make ketamine we don't really know much about it if it has psychoactive effects of it on its own like we're still learning about it it's the big head scratcher for a lot of people mm -hmm. and when i see ketamine precursor a in a sample on drugs data my immediate thought is oh this was made in a clandestine lab this is not pharmaceutical grade ketamine mm -hmm. and uh, b we're seeing an increase a significant increase in 2fdck and dck which is why we made the morris reagent Mm -hmm. um, which can differentiate those from ketamine. And if you do a bump of DCK thinking it's ketamine, you're going to be really fucked up. It's mm -hmm. way more potent. <laughs> right. <laughs> like have fun being in a K-hole for like six hours. Six hours, geez. K-hole yeah. for six hours does not sound too fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. So let's move on from the fentanyl stuff because uh, actually I think we covered most of the – even though there was like a lot of questions there, like I think we kind of – answered most of them mm -hmm. the only the only thing i think we maybe didn't which we sort of answered i guess is um the chocolate chip cookie effect which uh ah, you yeah. can quickly explain that one if you like yeah so the gist of it is that fentanyl is active in microgram ranges like really small ranges and it i think it starts at like 50 micrograms which is it's at like a half tab of lsd right like a, right. a typical dose of lsd is 100 mics 100 micrograms um and so fentanyl is lethal in approximately 0.5 to 2 milligrams, not grams, 0.5 to 2 milligrams. And that's a really, really tiny quantity. So if that is just like somewhere in your bag, which it always will be, it will never be evenly dispersed because it's literally like a few grains of kosher salt, right? Mm -hmm. Then in order to be able to properly test the whole bag, you have to dissolve the whole bag. And before everyone freaks out, there are ways that you can get your powder back after you do this. Um, Instagram doesn't like it when I talk about this because apparently <laughs> it's promoting drug use. Right. Um, but if you Google Reddit ketamine recrystallization, there's like whole guides on how to do it. That's all I'll say. Right. Um, but yeah, the, the idea behind that is that you could have 10 people doing bumps out of a bag 
and one person could hit a hot spot of fentanyl and it could be a lethal dose right there. So that's why I suggest that if you're passing a bag, especially of Coke, Coke is by far the most concerning one right now. If you're passing a bag of Coke around, um, make sure that everyone waits like eight or 10 minutes between bumps to pass the bags so that if something happens, because it can take a little bit for for the onset, like you don't come up on ketamine immediately when you snort it. Um, if you wait like a few minutes between bumps, then someone can respond if someone hits a hotspot. Right. Uh, yeah, that actually, um, there's another question in there that we, we sort of answered, but, uh, we can go over it again, I suppose, just to reiterate some, mm -hmm. <laughs> I had a, a friend, um, tell me once a while ago, uh, when all of this fentanyl stuff was, I mean, it's still happening, but like, anyway, he was like, um, oh yeah, you know, I just like, don't do, uh, K anymore. I just do Coke. And like, that's the way I'm going to like, sort of, you know, get around this, mm. uh, this fentanyl <laughs> problem. But like, you just say, said that like Coke is kind of the worst one or the uh, biggest yeah. culprit for having fentanyl in it. And I suppose it might be what, just because like the people who are using these cutting tables, um, to sort of do everything are mostly dealing with Coke and fentanyl in the same labs and maybe ketamine is more happening in different labs or something. I, why, why do you think that it's is? It's so hard to say. Like it's, I think that this is one of the areas where speculation is really risky and mm -hmm. that, um, like there are, there are many things that I could say as like guesswork, right? Like mm -hmm. I could guess for instance, that, um, the reason behind it would be that the fentanyl trade is like, there are a lot of clandestine labs in, um, uh, both Mexico and China and cocaine, for instance, like the coca production manufacturing process also originates in South America. And, um, during that process, right. Like there's a lot of different precursors and manufacturing processes involved. And so the, the smuggling routes might be comparable. The, um, it might both be car cartel business. Um, and with ketamine, there's a lot of uncertainty right now about where and how it's being produced because that market is shifting really rapidly because we're seeing just this explosion in demand for it ever since it became fast-tracked for treating depression and the scientific community took up so much interest and suddenly you have like middle-aged white moms in the suburbs who are really excited to try horse tranquilizer for the first time right, <laughs> right? after previously admonishing it probably so mm -hmm. i don't know like i really just don't know but the trends are there and um like it is it is by far more common to see fentanyl and cocaine than any other non-opioid drug that I can think of aside from potentially benzo sometimes. Yeah, that is crazy. I didn't think that would be the case, but um, yeah. all right, moving on from fentanyl, definitely this time. <laughs> uh, so, so another sort of like section of questions that I got, I kind of like grouped them all into sort of areas like of, of mm -hmm. topics is um, like people getting their stuff tested at, uh, at festivals, right? Or venues or whatever. Uh, the general sort of question that I that I kept seeing come up was basically along the lines of if somebody comes up and gets their drugs tested at a dance safe mm -hmm. tent, uh, what's to stop uh, like an undercover officer or something from following them back to their tent and then going through all of their stuff and maybe arresting right. them? Um, to my knowledge and to anyone in our team's knowledge, that has not happened. Um, generally... So here's the thing is that like all drug use is inherently risky. That's mm -hmm. just like a part. Many things are inherently risky. Like getting in your car is inherently risky. Like riding a horse is inherently risky. Um, telling your mom that you use drugs is inherently risky for a lot of people. But 
when it comes to drug checking, there are a few things that would have um, the potential for law enforcement to be more interested in a dance safe booth's activities. And the number one thing would probably be the legality of drug checking materials in that given state. Um, we have a website, drugcheckinglaws.wordpress.com, that goes through all of the different uh, drug checking law laws for possession and use and sale in every state in the country. So that's a good place to start just to see, like, is it illegal for me to have fentanyl test strips on my person? And there's actually one state, I think it might be Arkansas, where it's actually a felony just to have fentanyl test strips. Wow. Um, yeah, right? <laughs> like, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And yeah, it's probably like never... legal to own a gun and open carry there, probably. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's one of those things where, like, we've never had an issue with it. None of our patrons have ever had an issue with it. That's not to say it's impossible. Like, I'm not going to say, like, oh, it's always 100% safe all the time. But it, to my knowledge, it is not a risk in 23 years of operation that we've ever actually had occur. They're much more interested in us, you know? Mm, yeah, and okay. even so, none of our volunteers have ever been arrested or detained. Hmm. And at all, do you usually have like police uh, hanging around these tents and kind of like asking you questions? I would or is say it they, they just kind of leave Generally, no. Yeah, generally, nice. no. Because we will only be on the premises of an event if we have explicit promoter consent to be there. And we will never test without explicit promoter consent. Right. Um, Actually, that leads to a to another like sort of topic area of questions, which is kind of like why the, the, the general, um, uh, question in this, uh, area of questions is like, why would a festival turn down free drug testing or like, why, like, why would a venue not, not allow yeah. you to come in and test? And, and do you think that, uh, them asking or them agreeing for you to come in and test is basically them sort of insinuatingly right. condoning yep. Yep, drug yep. use and yeah, yeah. So this is um, one of the most common questions that we get asked. And the answer is um, many fold. So the first thing is that um, it's usually when a promoter has reached out to us to inquire about services, because that's often how it goes. If someone will reach out to us and be like, I'm interested. Um, usually the biggest roadblock is their legal team being like, don't touch this with a 10 foot pole. It's in our best interest to advise you to take no risks, etc." And, um, so that usually takes some conversation to lay the foundation of what's going to happen. Sometimes we operate on a, a plausible deniability model and sometimes we just like don't test. Sometimes we just offer free condoms and earplugs and like consent information and stuff about like heat stroke and whatever else, you know, like we're okay with scaling down our services. But I think a lot of this started circa 2002 with the rave act Reducing Americans' Vulnerability to Ecstasy Act, which gets me every time, <laughs> introduced nice. by Joe Biden. Wow. And um, this act, I think that when it was passed, it actually was not called the Rave Act anymore. It was a prior iteration of it. But um, this act scared a lot of promoters because there was a lot of anti-rave sentiment during that time period. It was like a moral panic. And there was this other juicy tidbit um, Dr. George Riccardi, who was a researcher funded by NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, who uh, conducted a study that rocked the scientific community because it said that MDMA is super neurotoxic to your dopamine neurons. And this terrified so many people that were like, oh my God, like we've been using this for like 
15 years in our patients. And like, I've been rolling every weekend forever. (laughs) (laughs) What does this mean? And the medical community freaked out only to discover a few months later that Dr. Riccardi had actually used meth instead of MDMA in his study. And the dose of meth is like a tenth of that of MDMA. So even as a study on meth, it would not have been applicable to human use generally because it was just like, an, it was like a proof of concept basically. So was he himself just taking like these giant 10 times doses of meth? Or like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It was a rat study, I think. Or no, oh, maybe gotcha, it was okay. rhesus monkeys. I don't remember which animal it was, but mm. it was not him. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Definitely not him. That would be a flawed experiment for sure. Right. (laughs) And so that came out and everybody panicked Mm. and, um, the rave act was passed. And then by the time the study was retracted, it was no longer like people didn't get that information really like the rave act or I'm sorry, the, the retraction of the study just did not hit nearly as many eyes as the publishing of the study did perhaps unsurprisingly. So, um, That really scared a lot of promoters for a lot of reasons. There was a lot of anti-MDMA sentiment. There was a lot of like, um, there was just like a lot going on in like pro-drug, anti-drug, like the dichotomy, the warring factions. And so promoters started um, not offering cool down spaces or drug information or anything that could implicate that they were condoning or admitting that they had drug use at their events. Um, But this was what caused a lot of deaths. Um, in the last 20 years, there have been so many deaths from people who could have not died if there had been drug checking available, if there had been free water available, if there had been cool down spaces available. And so I would say that a lot of the time, the biggest fear that promoters have is that they're, it's going to basically be like admitting that there's drug use at their event. And like, mm. let's be fucking real. No one goes to EDC and is like, there's no drug use here. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. And I say EDC, but it's every festival. This just one yeah, is yeah. the largest electronic there's, festival. There's, in the there's no way the promoters or the companies running these things honestly think that it's a 100% drug free environment. Yeah. 100%. And the police Everyone know this. Knows every, it. Yeah, I don't know. Bluegrass <laughs> concerts have right. so many drugs at them. Metal <laughs> shows sometimes. I don't know. But blue, bluegrass for sure has yeah. lots of drug use. So yeah. uh, a few years ago, there is a group called Amend the Rave Act, and they actually contacted the department, the Department of Justice, asking for clarification on whether providing harm reduction at events was criminalizable. Because, to my knowledge, no one has ever actually been convicted under the Rave Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe one person, but it's been so in, unsubstantial. And the Department of Justice wrote back and said, in no uncertain terms, that providing harm reduction at your events is essential. So. There's that, right. you know, like providing education is essential. And I can actually, I can link you that if you want. It's a marijuana yeah, moment article yeah. has yeah. like images of this. Love to put it in the um, show notes for sure. Yeah. So that's a great way to talk to promoters about this and be like the department of justice has explicitly said that this is an <clears throat> important part of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. The CDC officially endorsed the use of fentanyl test strips. The United States government officially endorses harm reduction now. Like, it's just like this is now an endorsed practice. And if local law enforcement give anybody shit for it, you need to have the facts to back it up and be like, mm. this is an endorsed practice. Right. So that's like probably a good way to put pressure on promoters and venues mm-hmm. to, to be like, hey, we should actually be here doing this thing. And Yeah. And try yeah. and like, you know, um, absolve them of any, uh, you know, le- legal... Uh, ramification guilt that they may right. have. Yeah. 
That's the um, biggest concern most people have. Right. Uh, yeah, continuing with like legality stuff, um, has Dance Safe ever been subpoenaed by the DEA or a similar, similar federal agency to turn over like records or provide testimony for, for any individual? Nope. Nice. Uh, another question I have that's kind of along these lines <laughs> is um, <laughs> has DanceSafe ever been accused of entrapment by like luring users in uh, to have illegal substance on them and then get arrested? Like uh, that would be probably accused by like somebody who went in, got their stuff tested, and then later maybe got arrested or, or something like that and then was like, what the hell, that was Dan, like DanceSafe fucked me over. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I would actually say it's like kind of surprising how little – issue we've had. Like there have been a small handful of incidents where promoters have kind of balked in the middle of the event and asked us to leave. That happened, um, in 2014, there's an article on what happened in electric forest, um, on our website. And other than that, to my knowledge, and this, like, I, I will say that, like, keep in mind, this organization has a really long history, so I don't want to speak with like complete certainty on the entire history, but to my knowledge, we just have had like a surprisingly small number of like legal run-ins, you know, like we just kind of do our thing and what generally the, oh, sorry, the worst that happens is we're asked to leave. Mm. What was the reason that electric forest asked you to leave? Oh, I was not there for it. I would have to read the article about it that was written, I believe by Mitchell, our executive director um, or E-Man, our founder. I don't remember which of them. But I believe that it had something to do with, um, I believe that it had something to do with law enforcement getting like suspicious or something and the promoters being like, we don't even want to take this risk and asking us to pack up. But I, that could be a complete mistelling, you know, <laughs> so um, I can I can link the blog post as well. <laughs> so hypothetically let's say after they they were like hey dan safe get out of here like we don't want you here because we think that it's like drumming up some uh police activity and, and that's like scaring people and we just don't want some we don't want any problems mm -hmm. or whatever if then there were to be an od at that festival uh from whatever uh do you think that that they then the promoters would be legally if not ethically kind of liable for for that to happen or no it's still unsanctioned drug use, you know? It's like people consuming at their own risk a controlled substance and they didn't test it and then they overdosed or whatever happened. Like there's, they would be completely absolved of legal responsibility. Right, I'm sure that's kind of like in the fine print of buying the ticket or something like that in the first place, right? It's like if you it, Unless it has something to do with their event and even so there are like lots of waivers in place and everything and like agreements and contracts, right? Um, unless it has something to do with that specific event, then I doubt that there would be any kind of intervention, honestly. It's pretty rare. Yeah, I imagine they probably also have like insane insurance as well. Oh, yeah. Especially <laughs> the big festivals. It's it's right. big, big guns for sure. Right. Uh, so I guess like the final group of questions here is just like advice stuff. Um, what do you think is more useful for somebody to have uh, Narcan or test strips if they have to have one or the other? Ooh, wow. Um, gee, that is, uh, am I allowed to say both? <laughs> I feel like I'm not allowed to say both. Right. Um, I mean, both is obviously ideal. But. Both is ideal. I would say, oh God, I would have to say Narcan, it 
if it's just you like carrying it around on your person, then Narcan, the biggest issue with test strips really is that people don't read our instructions. They use them wrong. Mm. That happens every single day. We get messages either like, um, I didn't get like a, a line at all on my test strip or like dance safe, dance safe. My Molly has fentanyl in it. And I have to be like, you didn't test it right. We have really long instructions about how to do it. And we're in the process of releasing new instructions that are going to be significantly more visually pleasing and clearer. So look out for those. Um, pinned on our Facebook page is uh, an infographic series about how to properly dilute using fence strips because if you dilute meth or MDMA incorrectly, you'll get a false positive. Mm-hmm. And you have to dilute it right. Like people don't understand how important it is to dilute it right. It is so important because. I personally have tested ketamine and gotten a false positive because I over-concentrated it. And I called E-Man. I was like, E-Man, there's fentanyl and ketamine. And he was like, you dilute it right? And I was like, yes. No, I didn't. <laughs> I had to backtrack. And yeah. right. So um, fence strips, super, super important to have on hand. And if you're going to use them, use them correctly. Because otherwise, you'll get a result that you can't trust or you'll get a result that is like just not valid. Um, Narcan, we're facing a a national shortage of it right now. So I encourage people to be like very mindful of privilege in obtaining Narcan. And if you're someone, for instance, who uses Coke, oh, actually, this is a good answer to the question. If you're someone who comes from a background of enough privilege to be able to have access to fentanyl test strips if you want them, and be able to like dilute them and evaporate the water out and everything. Use fentanyl test strips, have Narcan on hand for your group and space out your bumps or whatever it is that you're doing. If you're a person that does not have the privilege of those access, then get Narcan for sure. Like everyone should have Narcan on hand when they're using in a group. No one should be using alone right now. But I'm saying like, if you have a group of 10 friends, having every single one of those people try and get their hands on Narcan and like stockpile it, is probably not the best move at this moment. You need enough to make sure that your group is protected, obviously. Mm-hmm. But um, there are people who don't have access to the same testing supplies who will die if they don't have Narcan. Um, so it's delicate, you know, like I'm, I don't want to <clears throat> discourage anyone from getting Narcan, but just like don't hoard it. Like right. no hoarding mentality around Narcan right now. Um, but yeah, it's like seeing someone die from a fentanyl overdose is really jarring. I've seen it happen. Um and it's like, it's a preventable death really is what it comes down to. If you can use the strips correctly, just, just use the fucking strips guys. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, the other thing maybe to, to touch on here is like with a test strip, you really need to be at home to do it. Right. Cause you need to like, you know, yeah. fully dilute your stuff inside, like some sort of container, test it. Mm-hmm. And then like essentially what, put it in the oven to like reconstitute it back into a powder. <laughs> Whereas like a Narcan is just like what an inhaler or something. Yeah. It's a nasal spray. Yeah. Um, so here's how I put it basically is, you know, generally I would say that everyone would know what their own resources are. Like we will meet you where you're at in terms of diluting your drugs, for instance, with MDMA or anything that you plan on swallowing, you can dilute them at a festival. Um, one bottle cap is just about one teaspoon And if you buy one of our micro scoops, they're like little plastic scoops that hold 10 milligrams of powder. So if you want to do 120 milligrams of MDMA, you do like um, 12 scoops into a shot glass and then like 10 bottle or 12 bottle caps into a shot glass, mix it up, fence strip test it because that's a proper dilution. 
and then you just like take the shot at a festival. You know, that's a way to test it. Test your dose before you do it. If you're trying to snort something at a festival, um, my concern is that historically we've advised people use the baggy residue method or like testing a bit of the bag. But with the chocolate chip cookie effect, mm. your likelihood of actually catching the fentanyl with the baggy residue method is <clears throat> not very high. Right. So what I would say is, um, let's say you're at a festival or you're like at an event and you buy a ball of Coke or whatever. And you're like, damn, I like cannot test this and evaporate it. I want to snort this tonight. What's the least I can do? And the answer would be to use the baggy residue method only to see if it pops positive. If it pops positive, then your bag is contaminated. If it pops negative, you have no idea. Right. And you should still, <laughs> right. You don't know. Yeah. So you're really checking to see if that residue is testing positive. And if it doesn't test positive, all that tells you is the residue did not test positive. Right. Yep. <laughs> so that's like, you know, it's harm reduction. There are people that don't have housing who can't use those things. So we try and give like the bottle cap method and just like a little bit in the bottle cap, but it's really as a science, you know, it's, the last thing I want to do is to tell people to like, it's better not to test than to get a falsified result. But at the same time, um, a lot of the times the, it's basically just like a completely invalid test if you don't do it correctly and that erodes people's trust in the tests. Like if you keep testing Molly and it keeps <clears throat> testing positive for fentanyl and your friends are doing it and they're fine, you're going to be like, these are stupid. They don't work. Right. And that's also a problem. So like, <laughs> you see the issue, <laughs> we have like hundreds of hours of conversations about this. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine it's like a really difficult thing to, to tread around and figure out really hard problem yeah. to solve for sure. Yeah. All right. Last question. Cause I know you have to go and do more meetings. Okay. Um, <laughs> if there was like one thing that you could just tell people, uh, that they could do to be safer that they might not have thought about before, uh, what would that be? I mean, obviously this, you know, stuff like hydration, don't stand in the sun too long at a festival, all that kind yeah. of stuff. <laughs> I mean, is there any like kind of uh, like weirder, more obscure things that are just kind of really easy to do, but um, maybe people don't think about so much? Yeah. Um, the first thing that I would say actually is put in the effort to do your own reading. Psychonautwiki.org is like my go-to for this. And if you just take some time to like click through the wiki, you'll get an idea of just how many drugs there are. Um, and it gives you an idea of like dosing and everything. The second thing, I, I'm cheating, I'm doing multiple things. The second thing is to be hyper aware of how much you don't know. And this is a big problem with people that get arrogant about it. And I don't say that in, in a derogatory way. Like I've been plenty arrogant about drugs in the past. Like once you know more about drugs than you did as an average layperson, it's really easy to feel like you've unlocked everything. But I've been researching, researching is not, I'm not a researcher, but I've been in, involved in the study and practice and art of drugs for a decade. And I have so many more decades of stuff to learn. Like it's impossible. And I just want to like really stress that to people who are like, oh, I can tell apart the difference between this MDMA and this MDA by looking at it or by doing it or by tasting it or by touching right. it or whatever. Like, because I know my guy is good for it or whatever. Exactly. Like we've had people die when their plug of 20 odd years has not known that their batch contained fentanyl this time around. Mm. Um, and like, really, you have to take this fentanyl thing seriously. Like it is so serious. Um use with other people around, make sure that someone in your crew has Narcan. 
Like that's a big one. Just like someone in your crew um, and know how to recognize the signs of an opioid overdose. It's not the same as a panic attack. They do not look the same. So just like recognize how much you don't know, because that is going to be the key to us being able to take in new information and kind of challenge these rigid structures that we have, because we think that things are a certain way and it's hard when that's challenged, but being flexible about it is what's going to dig us out of this. Totally. Well, Hey, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I found this conversation really interesting. I'm sure others will too. And, um, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time. It was, it was awesome to chat with you. Yeah, of course. And I'm delighted to be here and thanks for having me. Yo, what's up? Thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. This show is produced and edited by Robert Fumo. You can get early access to the show by going to my website, mrbillstunes.com and paying me instead of Patreon. And remember to go rate and review on iTunes or I'm going to come to your house and punch your dog in the throat, upper deck your toilet and fuck your partner. Note, I may or may not do those last couple of things. Uh, You should probably just go rate it on iTunes or Spotify or whatever it is that you listen to the podcast on because it really helps the podcast. Um, but but just know that that it'll go a long fucking way to me not doing those things if you do go do that. So uh, you just just put that out there. I know what I'm-